You know, as we gather in this place today and we are standing, hearing each other sing praises to God, what an incredible thing it is to consider that behind each voice, behind each expression of praise is a a little universe of God's goodness expressed in those words of praise coming from hearts. These are hearts that have been converted to God, a miracle. Every person who is saved, every person who knows the Lord is a little miracle, a little microcosm of all of God's greatness and power and goodness displayed in the life and praise of one person. So praise God that we get to gather here this morning with each other, with the people of God, and worship Him. And that's what we're here to do. And we worship Him many different ways. Worship does not equal singing. Singing is a part of worship. It's an aspect of worship. It's an expression of worship. But preaching and hearing preaching is also an expression of worship as we are instructed in the Lord's Word. And that's what we come to now. And we... uh, We are instructed throughout the service in the songs we sing, the lyrics and the prayers that are prayed are instructive in nature. But here we come to be specifically instructed through the teaching of God's word. And we continue our series today in the book of Genesis. And we find ourselves in chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. So if you would, please go there and you'll see where we're headed in the bulletin. Chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. Last week was a finale passage. And I explained last week why I was calling it a finale. It was the end of Abraham's life. And, of course, we had another set of genealogies, those exciting portions of Scripture, which actually we discover are quite exciting as we've seen God's plan unfold in the lives of real people. And one of the things that came up in our gospel community group this past week is, is the way that in these genealogies we see that, that God's plan is, is personal. It involves people like us. We see that, that God's plan throughout history has involved real issues, real people with real problems, with real sin, that God is moving through the lives of people, accomplishing his purposes. And the title of this sermon last week was A Finale of Faithfulness. And what I argued was that in that chunk of verses, at the beginning of chapter 25, verses 1 to 18, we had a kind of tying together into a knot of God's three major promises to Abraham. And I said that those were the nations, the air, and the land, that God had promised to Abraham many different things. And we see All kinds of little expressions of faithfulness in that passage. But the three biggies are that nations would come from Abraham, a multitude of nations. He's Abraham, the father of a multitude, many nations. We saw that the genealogies are are showing us the reality of that, coming to its fullest expression there in the account of his death. And we also saw the heir, Isaac, and the centrality of Isaac in the unfolding redemptive purposes of God. He is the seed. He's the line of the seed. Little s seed, pointing ultimately to Christ, the capital S seed. And then we saw the land, the land that God promised Abraham. There, Abraham buried in the land where Sarah was buried. So everywhere we look in these first 18 verses, which we did last week, We see God's faithfulness. And one of the things that I have constantly mentioned is that as we're going through stories like this, we are building our view of God. And I want to ask you, do you think about the teaching of God's word and about church and about Bible study as being that? Because that is a very important part. And I would even say that is what Bible study is. It is, it is us building our view of God. As we come to his word, that's why we call it revelation. It reveals him, it's special revelation. As we come to the Bible, our view of God is being pieced together and built up. So think about it this way. In every single one of us, in mind and heart, in brain and heart, we have holes. We've got pieces missing. And that's, that's a big part of why we approach the struggles of our lives the way we do, why we approach others the way we do, why we sin. 
is because there are pieces missing in our understanding of God, our failure to grasp who he is and what he's done. And so when we come to a passage, even like last week, where we see God's faithfulness just shining forth, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to add a few more pieces, to put a few more things together in this building process. One of the things the Puritans were big on is the importance of meditation. And there's a book uh, called God's Battle Plan for the Mind, which is about Puritan meditation. I recommended that uh, at the men's retreat, and I recommend that now. We're going to have that on our bookshelf when we have a bookstall at the new building, and you'll be able to get that. But in that book, one of the things that it, it, it draws out is that the Puritans taught that one of the, the most powerful ways of meditating is to meditate on God's attributes. That as we're going throughout our day, as we're reading the word, we're meditating, we're chewing the cud on God's attributes. And so as we go through Genesis, we are getting much meditation material for daily Christian living. So last week was a finale passage. So it should be no surprise to us as we come to verse 19 today that we are getting an introductory passage. We've, we've entered into a new chapter. The end of the last chapter, so to speak, was a finale. It was, it was a conclusive uh, little bit of narrative. And now we are entering into a new phase in the story, a new chapter in the story, the next generation. And that's the title for today's sermon, The Next Generation. And this passage is giving us the next generation in two ways. First, the next generation after Abraham. So in chapter 25, verse 19, you'll see it there. The very first words, these are the generations of Isaac. So verse 19 tells us that it is an introduction to Isaac. And and it ends actually in chapter 35, verse 29. So what we've just come out of goes from chapter 12 or the end of chapter 11 all the way to the beginning of chapter 25. It's a chunk. It's about Abraham. And now we're entering into a new chunk that's going to run from this passage today all the way to chapter 35, verse 29, where we'll read of Isaac's death. So in one sense... This is the next generation having to do with Isaac, Abraham's son. But secondly, and even more importantly, this passage is an introduction to Jacob and Esau, and particularly Jacob. Because what we find is there's kind of a straight line going from Abraham to Jacob. Isaac's story, Isaac himself, does not get a lot of attention as we continue now For the remainder of the book of Genesis. The attention will now fall on Jacob. So for the next 10 chapters. We'll get sort of one portion of Jacob's life. And then at the end of Genesis. We'll get the whole episode with Joseph. Where Joseph is sold by his brothers into Egypt. But we see at the end of the book. That it's all been about Jacob really. So he is the main figure. For the remainder of the book of Genesis. And just to give you a little bit of background. If you're you're new to the Bible. And maybe you are, maybe you did not grow up in church, or maybe you're just a a new convert, or maybe you're not a Christian, you're here with a friend or family member, or you just really don't know very much about how the Bible fits together. Maybe you're here and you're a kid, and you're still trying to sort it all out. I want to just give you a little bit of a framework. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and we'll get there later. But just so you know where we're going, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons. He has 12 sons, and their descendants become the Israelites. So you've, maybe you've grown up in church. You've heard this language of the, the Israelites. Who are the Israelites? And they are the descendants of Jacob through his 12 sons. And so in many ways, the passage we find ourselves in today is the beginning of the story of the Old Testament. We know that the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel, about the Israelites. And what we are getting today is the birth and the beginning of the story of Israel himself, Jacob. So this is, in some ways, the beginning of the the overarching narrative of the Old Testament. I want you to hear 
Paul's summary of this nation of Israel in Romans 9, 4 to 5. This is the significance. You read through the Old Testament. You hear people all the time say, we're, we're, we're New Testament people or a New Testament Christian. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Of course we are part of the new covenant, but the whole Bible is our story, as we're seeing over and over again. But this is what Paul says regarding the nation of Israel, about whom all those pages in the Old Testament are. They're all about Israel as a nation. Here's what he says. They are Israelites, descendants of Jacob, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. You know, this, this world is filled with nations, even today. Uh, little political units or ethnic units that have become nations and going all throughout history, all of the nations of the world. And God chose this one nation, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob through his 12 sons. He chose this one nation and he gave them all of this. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Then he says this. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So that's a pretty incredible description of Israel, which we read about in the Old Testament. And it goes back to what we're looking at today with the birth of Jacob. So our passage for today is primarily an introduction to Jacob. One commentator, Gordon Winham, says this. It is the struggle between Jacob and Esau that dominates the next 10 chapters of Genesis. And speaking of our passage, he says, in these 16 verses... We have their future lives in a nutshell. These introductory paragraphs serve as a trailer to the main story, which comprises Genesis 26 to 35. In other words, it's kind of like a movie preview, a movie trailer. This is is giving us a little little taste or a little hint of what we're going to be looking at, all the themes and all of the happenings that we're going to be looking at for the next 10 chapters in the story of Genesis. And as we look at this introduction to the next generation, we see five things that point us forward. And what you would imagine with each of these five points is there's like a little dot, dot, dot afterwards. That's what I want you to see. If this is a trailer, if this is an introductory passage, then it's pointing forward to what's going to happen in future chapters. So next to each of these points, just in your mind, put a dot, dot, dot. These are setting up or setting the tone for all of the future chapters of this, of this storyline. So here they are. The barrenness, the battle, the birth, the bias, and the birthright. And today we're going to look just at the first three. The barrenness, the battle, and the birth. And then next week we'll look at the bias and the birthright. It really is one unit, 19 to 34. But it must be treated in, I think, two separate sermons. So this is what we're going to look at today. If you will, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Sorry I keep messing with this thing. I'm trying not to get distracted by it. Okay, so Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34. This is God's Word. It is, it is perfect and profitable for His people. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. That would have been interesting to see. Verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. You can go ahead and be seated. And we will uh, come to the remaining verses next week. Verses 27 to 34 which I'm sure you're familiar with, maybe, if you've been in church any amount of time. The, the, uh, the bias, the partiality Isaac has for Esau and Rebekah has for Jacob, and then, of course, the, the birthright incident is what we'll look at next week. So let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time, and we'll jump in to, uh, to these verses. Father, we are humbled by the privilege to study your word together. We thank you that you are present with us. Jesus, we worship you as our great king. Lord, we hear your voice in your word as you say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent to save us, whom you sent to to die a miserable death bearing your wrath so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that your judgment could fall on him in our place, in our stead, so that he could become sin for us, that he might rise from the dead and give us life. Father, those of us who have been baptized into Christ, we recognize that we were buried symbolically through baptism, buried with him in baptism. We were buried under the water, raised to newness of life, pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we have identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we, in our coming up out of the water, is an image of our future resurrection from the dead. In this we hope, Father, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you, the God of hope, would fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might abound in hope. Father, we know that you desire for us to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. And we know, Father, that we will not rejoice in hope or be patient in tribulation or be constant in prayer if it is not by your Spirit using the Word He inspired to strengthen us. And so we come. We come this morning, Father, with feeble knees. We come with open hands. And we ask you to supply what we need We ask you to give us the resources we need for the Christian life. For this very day, Father, we don't know what lies ahead for us today. For this week, we need you, God. We we confess our need now. We ask you to help us and use your word to do it. Father, would would you shove away all the distracting thoughts from our minds this morning? Would you help me to preach clearly? And Father, would our minds just absorb like sponges the truth of your word. It's it's the words and their meaning. Father, we ask you would do this work among us for Christ's sake, for his glory in the world. We pray that you would do the same among our children in the kids' space. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we come to the barrenness. So look with me, let's just put the spotlight on verses 19 to 21, and let's consider the barrenness, dot, 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 as it's pointing forward. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So much just packed into these verses alone. We have now made a full transition 
away from Abraham. Although it's interesting, if you follow the chronology, Abraham actually lives for the first 15 years of Jacob and Esau's lives. That's fascinating. Well, the, the text went ahead, the author Moses went ahead and dealt with Abraham and sort of closed that chapter. And he's doing that thematically to show us now we've moved on, we're going on. So Abraham's not going to appear again. But it is interesting that he's still there. And he's there for the first 15 years of Jacob and Esau's lives, which actually becomes quite fascinating when you think about Jacob in the tent with his grandfather Abraham and the conversations that probably took place. But that's for another time. We'll, we'll get there. But we've now made a full transition away from Abraham. And although we've transitioned away from this character, Abraham, we have certainly not transitioned away from the God of Abraham and the way that he relates to his people. And nowhere is this made clearer than in this condition of barrenness. Packed into this condition of barrenness is uh, an indicator that we're dealing with the same God and the same way of relating to his people. So what do I mean by that? Why is this so significant? Well, as with Sarah, Rebecca is barren. She cannot have children. As with Abraham, Isaac must depend entirely on the Lord. He must call on the Lord. He must pray to the Lord and seek the Lord. Remember Abraham? He's, he's calling upon the name of the Lord. He goes and he builds these altars. And there at these altars, he calls upon the name of the Lord. His personal piety, his personal dependence on the Lord. This is a way of life for Abraham. And we know that because going back, what does God say to him? Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. It's an image of a little child. And even this morning, I was walking out of the kitchen and there was my little daughter Adeline in her little dress walking in front of me. And there she is and she's just sort of looking back, making sure that I'm there. That's the image of God the Father overseeing us. Walk before me, looking back, knowing he's there, conscious of his holiness, conscious of his care. That is the life of Abraham. And it goes back to Noah and Enoch. They walked with God. This is what it looks like to depend on him. And the same is the case for Isaac. He must depend entirely on the Lord, must walk with him, must seek him, call upon his name. And as with the first couple, this couple must also learn to wait on the Lord. It's interesting, when you look at the, the, the time references, the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage, notice that, verse 20, it says that when Isaac married Rebekah, he was 40 years old. Well, what does it say in verse 26? When he finally had these two sons, how old was he? He was 60 years old. Now, that's interesting. That tells us that it took 20 years for Rebekah to conceive. It's a, it's a small little detail, but we can't miss it. The first couple had to wait on the Lord. That was the way it was all throughout Abraham's life, Abraham and Sarah, waiting on the Lord and waiting on the Lord and trusting him when it's not clicking and it's not happening. And this is what we see. It's subtle here. It's not put up explicitly, but if you piece it together, you see they have to wait on the Lord for 20 years before Rebecca conceives. So the pattern continues. God's people must rely on his power and wait on his timing. And I would say to you that this is the life of faith. We are often uncomfortable in the Christian life. And we're often frustrated because we fail to see that this is intrinsic to the Christian life. It is intrinsic to the way of God with his people. That we rely on his power and his timing. The Christian life is a life of relinquishing control and overturning pride. And this is the way that you see in the lives of unbelievers that this is utterly impossible 
for us. Not just for the type A people, okay? This is utterly impossible for all of us to relinquish control and to overturn pride. Everything in the sinful heart, everything in the fallen man wants to control his destiny, wants to control his life and his environment, and wants to gloat and glory in himself. And what we see here, subtly so, but truly here, is that the life of the covenant people of God is a life of letting go of that control and killing our nasty pride. That's the life of a Christian. And God will do whatever it takes to work that into our lives, to kill pride and to squash this desire to control everything and have it as we want it. Now, from this set of observations, we can extract some key truths about God. We've considered those things there. And now there's some key things here about God that we need to see. And once again, remember, we're building our view of God. And here we get some more content. We get some more pieces, some more building material. Let's keep building our view of God through these narratives. And there's four things here that we need to see about God. We've already seen them, but here's four. He hears. He remembers. He tests and he creates. So let's look at each of these. First, he hears. God hears and answers Isaac's prayer. Very basically, we got Isaac praying to the Lord and God answers him. Now notice, this is earnest intercessory prayer. This is the same kind of of language you get when Pharaoh, when God is afflicting Pharaoh with all these plagues in Exodus, and, and he comes to Moses and he says, just pray to God that he would relieve these things and I'll, I'll let your people go. I'll let them go. And of course, we know that Moses entreats God. He, he, he goes to God on behalf of Pharaoh and God removes the plagues. And of course, Pharaoh says, oh, never mind. Never mind. But this is earnest intercessory prayer. It's entreating. It's pleading. And we know that it's in accordance with God's will. How do we know that? Because we know what God's will is. God's will is this line. God's will is that all the families of the earth be blessed in Abraham's seed. So we know that when Isaac prays this, he's not just praying, God, we want a baby. He's praying very much in accordance with the will of God. And we also see here persistence and perseverance. This is 20 years. We don't know how long. But it suggests 20 years of persistent and persevering prayer. There's something else I want you to see here about this prayer to God. And that is that God accomplishes his purposes by means of prayer. Let me say that again. God accomplishes his purposes by means of prayer. Prayer is not just an unnecessary additive. It's not just a thing that we put onto the Christian life because it just makes us feel better. Or it helps us get through life. When we lived in Edinburgh in Scotland, there were these these big buses that would go by. And it was an attempt for some of the churches to just try to get more people in. Because in that society, we talk to 10 people about God and, and nine of them tell you they don't want anything to do with it. And on these buses was this language, try prayer. That's so weak. That's so weak. Something much better than that could go on the side of those. But try prayer. Prayer is not just some thing that we do because it helps life along. It just feels nice. No, that's not the case at all. God moves in prayer. God works in prayer. God does his mighty deeds through prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. Pray. Pray. People of God, pray. Pray. To this mighty God. So we see first that he hears. Second, we see that he remembers. God remembers his covenant. This is not, this word is not used here in this passage. But throughout we get this language. Like, for example, in Genesis 8:1, it said, God remembered Noah. Remember, they're in the ark, and God remembered Noah. And then in Exodus 2:24, we get. 
the, the Egyptians have enslaved God's people. And in Exodus 2.24, it says, God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And that's what we see here. God remembers his covenant. The line of the heir, the innumerable descendants, the possession of the land in perpetuity, all hinging on the birth of a son to Isaac. He must have a son for those promises to be fulfilled. God remembers his covenant and he opens Rebekah's womb. And third, we see that he tests. God makes them wait 20 years. That's so mean of God. No, that's not so mean of God. That's a good father. That's the same, similar when you don't give your child a large family-sized bag of Cheetos, for example. Or, as my son came up to me and asked me this morning, for a very large chocolate muffin out in the hallway here that happened to be left over. There's reasons we say no when they ask these kinds of questions. We are not mean parents for doing so. We are wise parents for doing so. And what we see here is a wise God. He makes them wait 20 years. He refines their faith. He schools them in prayer. Let me give you an idea that maybe you don't have in your mental arsenal. And that is, being a Christian is being in God's school. Think about that for a moment. We are all, as Christians, in school. There's a reason that the early church fathers talked about Christian philosophy. They talked about the Christian as as a little mini philosopher. They talked about a Christian as as a lover of wisdom, one who would, would go about life in the school of God's wisdom. We're all being refined. We're being molded. And guess what? This never stops. God will be refining your faith until you die. He'll be refining your prayer life until you die. He'll be testing you and molding you and guiding you and shepherding you until you die. That's the kind of God whom we call Father. He tests us because we are still in school. No one graduates from this school until glory. So we see that he tests. Fourthly, we see that he creates. It is God who has the power of the womb. He alone can create. No life exists apart from God. God gives life. We go all the way back at this stage to Genesis, to Genesis 1 to 3. We're in Genesis. But in Genesis 1 to 3, we go all the way back to the very beginning where we see God the creator. God speaking. Let there be light. And there was light. And God breathing in, as as Mike prayed earlier, breathing into the creation he made from the dust and making, making man. God bringing life, birds and fish and Animals of the land into being. God is the author of life. It did not come here on the backs of alien life forms. It did not just happen. God made life. God is the author of life. He creates it. And he has the power over the womb. We saw that back in Genesis 20 with Abimelech, that that God had closed all the wombs of the women of Abimelech's house. And what happened? When Abraham prayed for him, God opened the wombs of these women. God has the power over that. By the way, if God has the power to create physical life, and and it is is God who, who makes physical life to be, Isn't it also the case that it is God who is the author of the new birth? Isn't it also the case that it is God who is the author of spiritual life? How would we say that all of us in this room who never just sort of did anything to be born, right? We didn't didn't do anything. It just, it, it happened to us. God gave us life. Isn't it also the case that when we are born anew, born again, regenerated, that it is God who does that work. And that is why it says in John 1, it is not according to the will of man, not according to flesh and blood, but according to the will of God that we come into being. Jesus talks about the new birth. It's the Spirit who comes and gives new birth to dead hearts. In John chapter 3. So we saw how these characteristics defined 
the relationship between Abraham and God. And now in this introduction to the next generation, we're seeing that they will also define the relationship between Isaac and God and between Jacob and God and also between us and God. We are not just witnessing something distant. Oh, this is how God dealt with Abraham. That's nice. That's historically uh, interesting. Or that's how God dealt with Isaac and that's how God dealt with Jacob. But, but my relationship with God's a bit different. It's just, let me tell you about my relationship with God. It's so personal, so subjective. Well, here's the thing. If your relationship with God is, is different, is, is radically distinct from, from this kind of relationship between God and his people, then you've got a problem. Because this is the standard. This is how God operates. This is how God works biblically with his, with his people. He's unchanging. Same God then is the same God now. A year is like a thousand years. For God, it's nothing. No time has elapsed in the eternal God between then and now and tomorrow. He is. He is. The same with us. So this barrenness brings us back to Abraham, but it also points us forward. Remember the dot, dot, dot. This is the way God will continue to work with his chosen people. And speaking of chosen, let's go now to our next point, which is the battle. So we've seen the barrenness. Now we need to see the battle. Look at verses 22 to 23. 22 to 23. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The Lord has given life. He has enabled Rebecca to conceive. But then in the midst of this wonderful blessing, you imagine her excitement. Isaac and Rebecca's excitement. And by the way, God does care about this excitement. I and mean, we see that with, uh, with uh, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth in the Gospel of Luke, that, that when John the Baptist comes in, in the womb of Elizabeth, that it's interesting, the text is, is very much interested there, or the author is very much interested in showing how John the Baptist has a, has a role to play, but also it's for the gladness of, of the parents. God cares about that. The Lord has given life. He's enabled her to conceive. But then in the midst of this wonderful blessing, this wonderful time of joy, the unexpected happens. There is great turmoil in her womb. And this is really extreme. This is, this is abnormal. It's extreme agitation. I mean, there's, there is a serious conflict going on in her womb She's like, what in the world is happening to me? That's the, the language. What is this? I mean, I, I wasn't, now I'm pregnant, but, but, but this? This pregnant for this? The verb here for struggled is a strong word, meaning to oppress or crush. And one commentator paraphrases it this way. They smashed themselves inside her. This incredible tension and intense conflict going on inside of this woman's body. There is an intense little battle going on in her womb. So Rebecca's response is to seek the Lord. Just like her husband, she knows where to go for help. She knows where to go for answers. She knows that God heard Isaac concerning her barrenness, right? This is not in a vacuum. She, she's, she's thinking of, okay, God answered Isaac's prayer and I got pregnant. So she knows that was the case. And she knows that the Lord heard the prayer of Abraham's servant who found her at the well. Can you imagine how uh, amazed she would have been at the providence of God when she finally heard the servant of Abraham who came to that well with those 10 camels and those 10 camels knelt down and she's just there that day, just another day in her life. And she walks up and she says, oh, let me get water for your camels also. 
And then the, the servant is ecstatic and tells her, uh, but, but, but let me tell you this. See, I, I prayed, my servant sent me to get a wife for his son. And I prayed, I said, Lord, do this. And if this happens and, and this woman will, will draw water also for my camel, she'll be the one. And here you are and you're doing this. Amazed. This is a woman who knows that God hears prayer. She very much is aware of this. So she brings her trouble to the Lord. Verse 22, she went to inquire of the Lord. And I just want to pause for a moment and ask this question. Where do you turn when there's trouble? And I'm not, I'm not saying the Christian answer. You know, we all know the Sunday school answer. The Christian answer. Oh, God, I pray. Where do we really turn when there's trouble in life? Maybe you turn, you see yourself turning to your own ingenuity. Maybe you see yourself turning to another person, leaning and relying on another person. Maybe you turn to substances of one sort or another or something else that's going to pacify you. Maybe you turn to just endless TV watching or YouTube watching or, or just that endless scrolling and scrolling your life away on Facebook or whatever else it is that you turn to when there's trouble and heat and, and, and heaviness in life. Rebecca shows us that we are to turn to the Lord in prayer. This reminds me of the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Most of us probably know that Song, and I love the words, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And listen to these words, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That person you're leaning on, that substance you're leaning on, that activity you're leaning on, that self-reliance and discipline you're leaning on won't hold you up. It won't give you peace. But God can. And he is with us. And he is a good father. Far better of a father than any of us are to our own kids. Infinitely so. Cannot even be compared to the best of fathers. And then, in verse 23, we get God's response to Rebecca. And his response really is an explanation. He tells her what's going on. He doesn't make it stop. He just tells her what's going on. He explains, well, let me say it this way. His explanation can be summed up really with four words. Siblings, strife, separation, and subjugation. That just encapsulates what we have here. In her womb are twins who will give rise to two nations, will come from her. The relationship between these two sons and the nations to follow will be one of strife and separation. That will characterize the future in general. And in this tumultuous relationship, one will subjugate the other. One will have dominance. And contrary to expectation, it will be the younger of the two who will dominate. The second one born will be the greater, the stronger. He will be the senior, the superior, the one who subjugates the older. And it's at this juncture that we are brought face to face with one of the major doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of election. Now, let me say this about election. It is not a small doctrine. It is not a small matter of importance. Well, that doesn't really matter. We just need to get on with the Christian life. No, 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 no. The doctrine of election is essential for biblical theology. It is essential for the skeletal structure of all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It is fundamental. And if you look at the relationships of peoples throughout history and you see God choosing Abraham and here we're going to see God choosing Jacob and you see God choosing the nation of Israel and God choosing Judah and then you see God choosing the 12 disciples, Christ choosing the 12 disciples and then Christ choosing those who come into his church. The doctrine of election is all throughout the Bible. Many of us have the testimony of saying, 
I was an adult before I had ever heard anything about election. And that's sad because it is such an important part of our story, our story. So election. I want you to listen to Paul's explanation in Romans 9, 10 to 12. Mike read it earlier, but I want to focus in on some things here. Paul tells us what's going on here in Genesis 25. He explains what we should do with this passage as Christians. Romans 9, 10 to 12. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that's what we're reading about today, though they were not yet born. Now listen carefully to this language. It's so important. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. It's blank. No merit. No bad guy and good guy. None of that. They had done nothing, either good or bad. And then here's Paul's explanation for the why. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. By the way, let me pause there. Continue. Notice that. It's not as though God's electing purposes starts here in Genesis 25. That goes all the way back to Cain and Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah and so forth. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And then Paul adds to this by quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It is not as though God hated Esau. It, truly, that, that God just despised this, this man and just had no love for him. We know that God loves all of his creatures. He loves all people. He loves his enemies. Jesus will tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. But it is as though in God's electing purposes that for God to choose one and not the other is to love one and it is as though he is hating the other. And that's why Jesus tells us that unless you, you hate your own mother and father and children, you cannot be my disciples. It is saying that to love Christ and treasure him is of such a sort that all other things become as though we hate them in comparison to our grasp of Christ. That is what is meant by these words. So what is Paul saying? He is saying that our text here in Genesis 25 is a key illustration of election. Before these two sons were born, before they had done anything, either good or bad, God chose one of them over the other. Now notice what Paul does with it. Paul does not say that, that God saw what Esau would do, what Esau would become, and he chose Jacob, because he saw what Esau would do. We know that they both are sinful. We're going to read about that in the next few chapters. It doesn't say that. Paul is very clear in Romans 9. So as to say that God's choice of Jacob over Esau was unconditional, based solely and purely on the will of God. And it tells us two things about God. And this is very important. Remember, we're, we're building again. It tells us two very important things about the Lord. First, he is sovereign. And this is a language that gets, this is language that gets tossed around a lot. You wonder, well, what does that mean? Well, sovereign is connected to his, his kingly majesty, but it's also connected to his governance. That's what we understand about a king. He governs his realm. Well, what, what is God's realm? Everything. Everything is God's realm. He is sovereign over all things visible and invisible. And he is in control. And here's the thing. God does not, has not, and will not give this governance, this control over to what we imagine to be a bunch of free agents who are said in Scripture to be dead in their trespasses and sins who need to be made alive. We are described as enslaved, dead, darkness in the Bible. God does not give his control over to dead, dark, enslaved, depraved sinners. What would the world be like if he did? No. This is a sovereign God who controls all things. He is also gracious. So we have sovereignty and grace being communicated in election. 
His choice is without regard for works or merit. The younger rather than the older emphasizes that this is undeserved. You see, the older was the one who deserved to be the greater. The older was the one who had a claim on that. By God choosing the younger, he is communicating that grace is contrary to claim. It's contrary to this kind of deserving attitude. Grace is undeserved favor. It is unmerited. We see this going all the way back to Genesis 4. It is not Cain, but Abel, who is righteous. It is, it is Seth, who is the one in the chosen line after Abel is murdered. John Selhammer, a commentator, says, God's blessing is extended to those who have no other claim to it. They all receive what they do not deserve. So let me sum it up this way. You are not a Christian because God saw that you would believe. No, that does a number on grace. Do you not see that? What, what, is, what is grace when we have a God in eternity who see, looks down into the future and he sees that person will believe in me. And that person will believe in me. And then election is then conditioned upon that. And God elects that one. And he elects that one because he saw they would believe. Do you see what that does to grace? If you have two people in a room, one who believes and one who doesn't, under that scheme of thinking, the one who does believe can look at the one who doesn't and say, what is wrong with you? Believe like I did and you'll be saved. No. In a room where two people are, one is saved and one is not, the one who is saved knows. He beats his chest before God and says, God, I am a sinner and you had mercy on me. I am only saved because of your sovereign electing grace. You did not choose me because you saw, dig, dug real deep and found something of value in me and you held it up before your sight and you said, I'm going to choose them based on this. No, as far as he dug, as deep as he dug, he found nothing but sin. And he chose, despite, in the face of your sin. That's a God worthy of praise. That's the God we worship. That's the biblical God. The God of Scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather than Esau. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for Adoption. And Acts 13, 48 says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul's preaching, and it says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What in the world does that mean? It means exactly what we see here. As many as God had chosen to be saved, they were saved. God is sovereign, and He is gracious. So in this introduction to the next generation, we've seen the barrenness in the battle that God creates and God chooses his people. But now, as we finish up for today, we turn to the birth itself briefly. So look at verse 24 to 26. This is the birth. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The circumstances surrounding the birth of these two boys determines their names. The name Esau sounds like Harry. Not H-A-R-R-Y, but H-A-I-R-Y. Sounds like Harry. And this firstborn child is covered in hair at his birth. The name Jacob means he grasps the heel. And that's exactly what this second born child is doing with that tiny little hand. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. Quite a spectacle. You have this, this kid just totally hairy. And then this other kid comes out grabbing hold of his heel. It's, it's quite a picture. So those are the basic meanings behind the names. But what's important to notice here is how these circumstances and names anticipate the rest of the story. This is where we're going to finish up today. Alan Ross, a commentator, says that Jacob was, in essence, struggling for the best starting point. Now, obviously, he doesn't have this in his little mind. 
little infant mind. But he is, that's, what, that's what's being visualized. He's, he's struggling for the starting point. Now you get back here. I'm coming out first. He's trying to get out first. He's trying to get ahead of his brother. Gordon Wenham comments, the symbolism is everything. Here, the second twin is seen trying desperately to catch up with the first. The struggle in the womb is obviously going to continue outside. The pattern for the rest of the story is set. So this is introductory material. This is going to set the stage for the next 10 chapters that we're going to study over the coming weeks. And as we will see later, Jacob gets ahead of his brother through deception. If you know the story, and we'll get there, but he deceives, deceives his father. He defrauds his brother. And that's also connected to his name. Kenneth Matthews says that the child attacks the heel, conveys the idea of deception, betrayal, and opportunism. So in one sense, it's just this innocent little thing. He's got the heel of his brother. Oh, look, we'll call him Jacob. But then in another sense, this is anticipatory of the deception and the overturning that will happen later. Esau makes this clear in chapter 27, verse 36, after Jacob has deceived and taken the seniority, taken the blessing. This is what Esau says. Is he not rightly named Jacob? He's angry. He is hot. He wants to kill his brother. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. So we see that his name is attached not only to what we have at birth, but also to what will happen in his deception. So this morning we've looked at the barrenness, the battle, and the birth. And next week we'll cover the bias and the birthright. Big ideas for this morning, God creates and God chooses. And yet, and yet, this is the wonderful thing about the Bible. And yet, humans are responsible for their actions, as we will go on to see. We know that the writer of Hebrews will condemn Esau for what he does later. And we know that all of the hardship that Jacob faces in his life is a direct result of his own sin, his own deception. So we know that God's sovereignty, his grace, his election does not undo or minimize or eliminate human responsibility. On this path of divine election, both Esau and Jacob will be responsible for their own sin. Esau will despise and Jacob will deceive. And this will affect each of them, their family. Their choices matter and they are responsible for them. Yet God is sovereign. A great mystery indeed. You know, some of those who are the most outspoken opponents of what we understand to be unconditional election, that God chooses before time began, some to be saved, and then his entire redemptive purpose is about saving those people. Some of the most outspoken proponents among our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, or the outspoken opponents of that view among our brothers and sisters in Christ, are Christian philosophers. And I think part of the reason for that is because Christian philosophers or philosophers in general are, are, are quite unhappy. And oftentimes this is, this, is, this is good and useful. They're quite unhappy with tension and mystery. And, and, and when you can't explain it, philosophers got to explain it. They got to explain it. The Norman Geislers and William Lane Craigs of the world have to explain how these things fit. If you can't, What do you do? Well, I think so often, sometimes, what the Bible clearly teaches gets kind of taken off the table. And that's unfortunate. What I hope we'll see today is that God creates and God chooses, and yet we are responsible for every choice we make. And we'll give an account to God. And without Christ, we will die in our sins without excuse and face His judgment. But praise God that in Christ... Our sins have already been punished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
what you teach us here in the pages of Holy Scripture. Father, we ask that you would continue to guide our thinking biblically, that you would continue to guide our building of our worldview, of our understanding of who you are. Father, help us trust your sovereign goodness. Help us know that you are the only reason we are saved, that there is nothing of value in us, neither in our will or in our actions or in our thinking, but you are gracious. Father, thank you for the illustration of this this morning in the life of Jacob and Esau. Thank you for continuing your story, the story of your care after Abraham. And thank you that we, the offspring of Abraham by faith in Christ, have the same assurances this morning that you are with us, that you remember your covenant, that you hear our prayers, that you create, that you are powerful and at work in our lives, and that you test us and refine us as a good, wise father in the school of your grace. We thank you for this time. Would you use it for your glory and our good? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.